Welcome to the Pink Tax Podcast, a no-nonsense podcast for millennial women, building wealth and smashing the patriarchy, one dollar at a time, with your hosts, Janine and Tara. Tara, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. I'm so excited to introduce our guest for this evening. Um, Leah Gazan is an MP with the NDP party and is joining us on the Pink Tax podcast for this episode. So thank you so much for joining us, Leah. Oh, I'm just so happy to be here today. Now, do you want to start by maybe sharing a little bit about yourself for our listeners? Yeah, sure. So I'm the member, currently the member of parliament uh, for uh, Winnipeg Centre. Um, I was elected in October uh, in the last election. Um, I've been uh, a long time kind of community leader, uh, human rights and anti-poverty um, advocate. And, uh, you know, when I was elected and prior to being elected, even prior to COVID, one of the things that I ran on was that I would support a guaranteed livable uh, basic income. And so that's what brings us here today to talk about my motion 46. So I'm really excited uh, to have an opportunity to do that with you. Fantastic. So just for anyone who hasn't heard of motion 46, do you want to quickly run through it at a high level? Well, just just at a high level, I mean, we know uh, right now uh, during the pandemic, uh, you know, there's more and more people all the time that are losing their jobs, businesses are closing down. And one of the things we've we've learned through the CERB is that we actually do have the resources. What we've lacked for so long uh, is political will. I represent the third poorest riding uh, in the country. We have, in 2018, they reported that 41.1% of children living in uh, the riding I'm currently representing live in poverty. That's abhorrent. Uh, that's abhorrent because uh, this current government and certainly consecutive conservative and liberal governments have sp- spent billions of dollars on what I call corporate welfare, uh, whether it be pipelines, whether it be not going after offshore tax havens, uh, you know, giving $50 million to MasterCard, $12 million to, to log laws. Meanwhile, in my community, as the pandemic persists, uh, we have families spilling on the streets. I have families that are currently living in shelter uh, with children. I have families that have lost jobs as a result of of uh, the pandemic who are currently living in hotel rooms uh, with many children. Uh, We need to do better and we need to take the money that is invested in corporate welfare in this country and reinvest in people. And that's exactly what my motion intends to do. Uh, My motion uh, that I put forward, motion 46, um, is uh, is in support of of a guaranteed livable basic income accounting for regional differences in living costs. It would be for all Canadians over 18, single persons, families, seniors, students, uh, persons with disabilities, temporary foreign workers, uh, permanent residents and refugee claimants. Um, 
and it would be in addition to current and future public services and income supports paid on a regular basis. And it doesn't require necessarily that you have had participation in the labor market, education and training uh, in order to be uh, eligible. And really what this motion is designed to do is to uphold uh, the uh, Canadian Charter. And, and one of the things that our charter um, states that it's uh, that we are supposed to do is uphold human rights and dignity and that's exactly why I decided to put this uh, private members motion forward. That's so awesome. I've watched some of your interviews that you've had on this so far um, and one of the things that really struck me that you said was um, throughout the pandemic there's been a failure of government um, and that really struck me. And I was wondering, like, with everything that you've just mentioned of who this would help and what it would add to the current programs that we already have, I was wondering what other government failures drew you to a basic income as the measure to prevent these failures from occurring in maybe a future pandemic or, or another shock, whatever it might be. Yeah, 100%. So, you know, as I stated before, this is something that I uh, campaigned on during the election. This is something that I believe in. I, I, base, uh, I base my opinion on research. Uh, you know, I know that there, like I said, there's a lot of um, uh, stereotypes or, or a misunderstanding that when you actually look after people, it, 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 it uh, results in people not being motivated to work. And actually what we've seen through research is that, you know, through the Mincom study in Manitoba in Finland, that in fact people continue to work but you have a reduction in costs and other uh, social supports. For example, health, physical health and mental health improves. Um, you know, we know the high costs of poverty. We need to start talking about the high costs of poverty. Um, so in what we find is actually in the long term, it actually um, saves money. Uh, there are so many groups during, during the pandemic. You know, the first uh, group that was supported uh, when we found out we were going in a global pandemic was the fossil fuel industry. Meanwhile, in writings like mine, I'm begging for money uh, to ensure that people have a safe place to live, a safe place to stay, uh, particularly uh, during uh, the pandemic. Um, in response to Canada Health, Health, Health Canada um, guidelines, which say that the best deterrent in this pandemic is physical distance and frequent hand washing. And I say to that, you need a home and, and access to clean drinking water for that. I have a very large uh, population who resides um, uh, in the uh, homeless community right in my own backyard. They deserve uh, to be safe. Uh, they deserve to have uh, their uh, human rights and dignity, seniors, uh, in across the country, we've seen in uh, some of the care homes, again, human rights and dignity, uh, students uh, who are finding themselves in a situation where they don't even have the finances to go to school. If we can spend billions and billions and billions of dollars bailing out uh, big corporations 
uh, through this corporate welfare system that's become so normalized, people don't question it, then certainly we can afford to invest in human rights and dignity. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I definitely agree. Um, and Janine and I are both from Alberta and I hope that some folks are starting to see that through this pandemic, you know, you might love oil and gas, but sometimes it just doesn't love you back. And a lot of these measures, you know, require you to be employed. And if you can't go to work, because like you've said, it's staying six feet apart and washing your hands. And if your job evaporated because of that, why should children suffer? We don't have children going to work. So I really hope that um, that the point that you just made is now evident. And just to build on that, like, I really don't think people love oil and gas. I think they love feeding their families. I think they love having a home. Uh, I think uh, they love to live with human rights and dignity. And we see, uh, you know, so this isn't about people that are working. This is not about the workers that currently are working in oil and gas. This is about the fact that the kind of subsidies that, that go into bailing out these big oil corporations that can certainly pay for themselves, we need to use that money to invest in people, whether it's transitioning into a green economy, whether it's ensuring if they, you know, as the pandemic persists, find themselves out of work, that they can still do what they love having paying for having a home, uh, supporting their families, looking after their kids. And at this critical juncture where we see uh, growing rates of, of uh, unemployment, we need to act now to ensure that people, all people in Canada are afforded hum- uh, dignity and human rights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So with the motion that you've put forward, I've noticed, and I think the listeners know where I end up on the political spectrum. I've noticed that sometimes these points are made, sometimes motions are brought forward, um, and then what comes through as, you know, um, like say for instance the CERB or some form of legislation, it doesn't actually protect the most vulnerable people. So I was wondering, what can we do as citizens to ensure that a motion like the one that you've brought forward will actually insulate the vulnerable populations from shocks like COVID um, without instead, you know, benefiting those that are already privileged? For instance, you know, the giant corporations um, or maybe even just the upper class Canadians. Yeah, so so I think with this motion, um, one of the the critical pieces is paragraph five. Uh, and and what that means is that this motion isn't repla- in replacement of our current social safety net. It's in addition to, because there are uh, necessary uh, supports for, for diverse populations that reside uh, in this place people call Canada. And, uh, and that includes, for example, disabled persons. Uh, their costs uh, related to things like medications very often, uh, even uh, things that uh, for people with uh, like requiring wheelchairs, these things come with great costs. It has to be in addition to uh, the current and future government public services and income supports. So I think that's one point uh, about uh, certainly my motion 
uh, certainly critiques that have come out about a guaranteed livable basic income is that it cannot replace the current social safety net. And I want to say that I absolutely agree. It has to be um, in addition to, there are things that you can do right now uh, to act in support of it. One, uh, you can sign uh, the petition at leahgazan.ca slash basic income motion. That's leahgazan.ca slash basic income motion. Um, add your name. We're also organizing a national day of action. And I just want to remind uh, people that, you know, when Tommy Douglas uh, came out uh, fighting for Medicare, people thought he was crazy. Oh, it can't be done. It'll bankrupt the country. But actually, now it's become a normalized part of Canada. It's, it's one of the things that our country is the most revered for, is having uh, you, uh, Medicare uh, in Canada. Uh, and the same thing's happening now. Thousands and thousands of Canadians across the country, now that they've received the CERB, see that this is an absolute possibility. We have lots of research that's been done. One only has to look at uh, what's happening in Finland now or Manitoba, you know, way back in the day, decades ago, uh, with the MinCom study, that this is very much uh, a possibility. Now it's just requiring p political will, and people need to remember, they choose who are in government and who are who is not, and we need to make this a key issue so that any party knows that this will determine whether they get elected or not. This is a human rights and dignity matter, and we need to keep pushing it forward. A hundred percent. I was going to ask the question around kind of some of the naysayers. And um, I know you've addressed it a little bit, but I, I'm more curious to hear what you're hearing um, around some of the negative comments. Because what I hear is, you know, people won't like continue looking for a job. And what I see, and I think Alberta actually has the highest number of um, CERB instances um, per capita, or it's like one in four Albertans are on CERB, is that the people that aren't working, actually, they do really want to work. So I'm curious on your thoughts on that, but also um, if you've seen any research around innovation and, and leveraging um, a universal basic income, allowing people to you know, create small businesses because they don't have to worry about, again, putting food on the table. Yeah, so, so, so a couple of things. One, uh, research proves that, in fact, that is false, that uh, even during CERB, uh, during w when people are provided um, with a basic income, um, absolutely, they have found it false that people continue to want to work. And I think, like you've indicated, uh, it, now people have the ability to do things like, you know, uh, pursue their entrepreneurial dreams. But we also don't talk, artists are able to create art. Uh, and, and I think, you know, with artists, uh, you know, uh, people often, I, I see a devaluing of the arts, but can you imagine COVID and being isolated without books, poetry, music, movies? Netflix. Netflix? Like how terrible would this pandemic be? And they provide a critical, critical support to, for joy and to support mental health. I, many parents who want to stay home and care for their children, another form of unpaid work that often goes uh, devalued uh, would now give people the choice um, to do that. 
but we also have to remember there's many people in society, uh, for example, seniors. Uh, do we want 80-year-olds going to work? There's so many seniors across our country that live in destitute poverty. Uh, disabled persons who very often want to work, but because of discrimination and stereotypes and stigma, have more difficulty uh, gaining employment um, and often are part of our form some of the, the most economically disadvantaged uh, in our society. Uh, individuals that are suffering from mental health and trauma issues um, that really do need supports, people with intellectual disabilities. So we need to start when we talk about things like picking ourselves up from our bootstraps and, you know, getting to work, you know, not everybody uh, is born with the same deck of cards and certainly we're not born in a society where everybody is valued equally and we need to address uh, that uh, those disparities uh, with something like a guaranteed uh, livable basic income. One of the things I hate the most is that notion that you need to pull yourself up by the bootstraps because first of all if you've actually ever looked at the like where that saying came from it was um it was like decades ago but it was supposed to be satire and um what drives me wild is you know people and i think that this is a point that everyone kind of needs to remember is you can say pull yourselves up by the bootstraps but that becomes impossible for people if they don't have any boots and that's what we're seeing, I think, in our society is that separation of the middle class and we're seeing people in poverty and those are the people that just, they don't have boots. So how, how can they pull themselves up by the boots? Yeah, and, and I think we need to look at, you know, uh, the fact that right now we live in a country that gives billions and billions and billions of dollars. Uh, they invest in uh, billions of dollars in corporate welfare. Uh, they refuse to do what's needed to do to uh, get the taxes owed that are being housed in offshore tax havens. Uh, we are giving taxpayer dollars to uh, credit card companies and law laws. Uh, so, you know, it's not that people in this country are not benefiting from taxes. It's not that people in this country are not being let at off the hook, but unfortunately, it's not just individuals on the ground. And I think we need to, to, to change that discussion, uh, divest from corporate welfare and start investing in people. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I really love it. I was writing that quote down. One thing that I've been wondering about, and maybe it's just because I'm, you know, I'm, I didn't take political science in school or anything like that. But what does it mean for this motion now that the government is prorogued? Well, what might happen, uh, you know, certainly when I found out, uh, you know, I'm a new MP and I heard the government was prorogued, I thought, oh man, like we, this is our light for a guaranteed livable uh, basic income for all. Uh, the motion will stand. It's more of a technicality. The number might change. So instead of being motion 46, it could be something else. But the motion can stand. Uh, so I'm looking forward to uh, once we resume uh, that to put forward this motion again. It certainly is getting lots of support, even though uh, the parliament has been prorogued. I have spoken to members opposite in all parties. I do have support in the Liberal Party, uh, in the Green uh, Party, in the Black 
block even uh, for this particular motion. I'm, I'm working on uh, support from a member of the Conservative Party. Uh, human rights are not a partisan issue. Human rights should always be human rights. And so I'm looking forward to working with other members uh, in the House of Commons to advance human rights and dignity for all. That would be amazing. Yeah. Now, I have a question just for our listeners who maybe don't know the difference, because before um, we kind of started seeing what you were you know, posting on Twitter and Motion 46, Tara drew my attention to it. I don't know if I was 100% clear on what the difference is between um, UBI, so universal basic income, and the guaranteed livable basic income that you talked about. Yeah, so, so what I'm proposing is uh, to provide a basic income for people that don't have a livable income. For example, I'm a member of parliament. Uh, I, have a, I have a fairly good uh, earnings right now. I don't need a subsidy. Uh, but there are many people in my riding, for example, that need a subsidy or many people who are working, but because of COVID, for example, or before or childcare uh, needs, uh, you know, they aren't able to work enough hours to have a livable income. So this would be like a top up for individuals uh, and, and all individuals uh, in, included uh, in my motion, uh, in addition to existing and, and future government uh, um, uh, services uh, and supports. And so how do you de- determine how much an individual gets? Like, does it change province by province or city by well, city? Well, 100%. So one of the things, uh, certainly in uh, paragraph one of my uh, motion, I talk about accounting for regional differences. For example, it's it's less expensive to live in Winnipeg, if I can use Manitoba as an example, uh, than, uh, you know, uh, remote uh, northern communities where sometimes it's $14 for a four liter of milk. And so we need to account for for regional differences in in terms of cost of living and and the kind of income supports that are provided. That's amazing. Have you determined at all, like obviously it's going to be different for different jurisdictions, have you determined like a, a base or is that something that once it's in that would need to be decided. Yeah, so these these are things that can be worked out. It's a motion. I'm hoping this motion pushes forward into uh, legislation. Certainly, we know through uh, COVID that our current employment uh, insurance system is outdated and archaic. It's not working. Um, and uh, you know, I'm hoping as as this motion gets put pushed forward, uh, that uh, those discussions are to be had again. Uh, critical to my motion is paragraph five, and that's in addition to current and future government public services and income supports. We cannot um, have a guaranteed livable um, basic income and gut our social safety net. We need to build mm-hmm. on a social safety net that already is inadequate to ensure that people can live with human rights and dignity. Very cool. I love that. I love what you um, said about um, the differences in food prices, especially when we look at like the Northwestern communities. I, I, like, I just don't understand how this hasn't been addressed earlier. Um, it, it, yeah, we have so much food throughout this country and it just doesn't make sense to me that I can pay $3 for a, a head of cauliflower and somebody who lives, you know, not that many hundreds of kilometers north from me will pay, you know, 10 times that. It's unbelievable. 
A hundred percent. And I also think one of the, the notions we have to work through is why did we learn that it's noble? Like I was a, a single parent for a time and I worked, uh, you know, sometimes two, three jobs, to pay my mortgage, look after my son, make sure I had enough uh, for daycare. Uh, you know, why is that normalized? Uh, because it's not healthy. Uh, again, needing to divest from this corporate welfare system that makes people that are just trying to work hard, raise their families, have to work even harder uh, to benefit the ultra rich. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important there to note. And we did mention this in our last episode. Like when we talk about the ultra rich, I think a lot of people think that if they make like $100,000, they fall into that category. But I think it's important to note that that's, you know, those are people that are that have tens or hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars. A hundred percent. And they need to pay their fair share instead of families that are struggling on the ground. Definitely. Yeah. I thought of another question. I hope you don't mind if I just pop this one in there. Um, I was thinking about this. How do you get um, the GLBI into the hands of folks that right now don't um, file taxes either because there's barriers that prevent them from doing so or they don't know how or they're unhoused, they don't have ID, um, so this is just not even on their radar. Um, or they're unbanked. Yeah, or they're unbanked. Like, I, I know there are some folks that can't get the social benefits that we already have because they just don't file taxes. Well, and, and I think that goes back, you know, I live uh, and I represent, uh, again, the third poorest riding in the country. There has been a real lack of investment in frontline organizations, including from consecutive liberal and conservative governments. And I say that because they're the only ones that have been in, in federal government to, in this uh, country so far. Um, and that's what it looks like. So, I mean, when we're talking about, again, going back to, uh, paragraph five, it needs to be in addition to, uh, to future government public services and income supports. Uh, we need more investment uh, in frontline services to ensure that we can reach people so that they're not left behind. I know there are ways to do that. Like during the election, a lot of people are not aware of it. But as long as you have an address, even if you're uh, living in the homeless community with one of the local shelters, you can vote. And a lot of people, first of all, are not made aware of those rights, but why can't we ensure that in those places, if we invest money, hopefully we won't need shelters going forward. Everybody will have accessible, affordable social housing. But for people, for example, that are struggling with serious mental health issues, why are we not investing in supports to ensure that uh, supports are available to ensure that people don't... Uh, lose out on accessing these very important programs. And that uh, ultimately is about government choices. Governing is about choices. And I'm saying certainly very strongly with this motion, uh, certainly uh, around uh, matters that I've advocated for, for most of my life, um, that we need to make real investments uh, in people, uh, in our environment, uh, to ensure that all people are afforded with human rights and dignity. Definitely. Now, I think kind of building on that, like the human rights and dignity side of things, we've seen 
just how detrimental, um, you know, being in isolation or not having access to the social services that people need, it can be to people's mental health during this pandemic. How do you see UVI impacting mental health across Canada? Well, I, you know, this this is what I've said and, and certainly I've said to uh, colleagues uh, across the way. Um, having families have to wait and individuals have to wait for the announcement that happens every couple of weeks uh, or in a month is so bad for mental health. People need stability and security right now, particularly during a time of pandemic. Uh, it's bad enough. It's, you know, it certainly puts a strain on individuals, even those who do not, ex are not experiencing financial strain. But when you add that on to, to the kind of, of strain that people are just trying to figure out their way uh, through the pandemic, it is a serious public health and safety issue. Uh, keeping people safe, making sure people's mental health is looked after. We know that uh, this could uh, go on. We've heard from the World Health Organization year and a half up to three years. And we need to put these programs in place to ensure that people can live with human rights and dignity uh, and in support of, of positive mental health. Definitely. And I think you're right. Even myself, like knowing people that are leveraging CERB or, or on EI or what have you, like it is super stressful waiting to see if what's going to happen come end of September, right? We're a month away from CERB running out. A hundred percent. And I have to say, I find that really frustrating when I'm begging for support for my wonderful community that I'm privileged uh, to live in and represent, a Winnipeg Centre, and then I see millions and, and billions of dollars flying out the door for big corporations. So, so I think, you know, we are in a, a critical juncture. I do think it's hopeful uh, that we can get this through. Again, sign the petition at leahgazan.ca slash basic income motion. Um, so that we can realize human rights and dignity for all Canadians, seniors, students, uh, disabled persons, uh, temporary foreign workers, refugees, permanent residents. Uh, we need to get this through. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm glad there's such um, a, a broad description of the folks that that needed, especially like refugees as well. Um, I just don't know why we wouldn't you know, welcome those folks with open arms and and help them as much as we can. And and it's a public health and safety measure. If you don't look after everybody in a community right now, uh, however you feel, uh, it is a public health and safety issue for everybody. And how we look after everybody in this circle now uh, matters more than ever before. And I think people are seeing that more and more. Certainly, uh, I don't, I haven't gotten a lot of pushback about this motion. I think uh, Canadians by and large believe in caring and looking after each other and ensuring that people have what they need, uh, minimum, at least minimum human rights and dignity. Uh, and we just have to push it forward. Yeah. Um, my next question goes a little bit off topic. Um, because in one of the discussions I watched that you had done, um, you mentioned that there's special treatment for capital gains. And I was wondering what you meant by that. And then in your view, how is that special treatment for capital gains 
um, adding to the inequity that we see today? Well, I think, you know, I, I certainly spoke about that. Like there's there's billions and billions of dollars that we're losing in offshore tax havens. Uh, you know, we we invest, uh, you know, I don't think credit card companies need $50 uh, million. I don't think Loblaws uh, needs uh, $12 million uh, for fridges. Uh, the, the government just announced uh, a couple of weeks ago that they're going to spend between $1 and $5 billion on, on air drones. Uh, in in the midst of midst of all this uh, kind of frivolous spending, uh, there's people that are starting to uh, flow onto the streets, and that includes families and children who have lost work uh, and employment uh, as a result of the pandemic. Um, and that impacts people. Again, governing is about choices, and I choose people. Uh, it's time to divest from corporate welfare and put that money into people. So, I guess in our podcast is obviously focused on all things finance and feminism. And we're finding, obviously, there it's, there's increasing, I guess, intersectionality between the two. Um, more so, I think, even than I originally thought. But how do you see this motion helping women in particular? And the, like we've, we continue to see, obviously, um, the pay gap perpetuating and we also see um, that women were affected um, more so with the pandemic and having to, you know, take on that caregiver role and maybe take a step back from the, the corporate world. Well, a hundred percent. I think, you know, a lot of people are calling it a she covery. I mean, it's, you know, women across this country are the ones that have been some of the hardest hit uh, by by the pandemic. I mean, one of the things that our party is fighting for certainly is universal childcare. Uh, we know that a that a well a financed a universal child care supports uh, women in the workforce. So, absolutely, it impacts women, and certainly uh, 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 women, particularly those that are that are uh, heading uh, single parent uh, households. Uh, this is critical. Uh, you know, poverty costs a lot of money. Uh, it hurts families, it hurts mental health, it hurts physical health. And, and by and large, uh, you know, uh, women uh, have been at, impacted uh, significantly uh, by COVID-19. Uh, so it's absolutely critical, uh, you know, uh, to, to ensure that we uh, get this guaranteed uh, livable basic income through. And I wonder if it will, obviously, if everyone that is below a certain income receives um, this guaranteed livable um, income, I wonder if that will start to, at a base level, erode some of those um, kind of disparities between men and women when it comes to earning a wage. Yeah, and I think it doesn't have to be one or the other. I think, you know, we, we have a long way to go to to fight for income inequality. Um, we also need to ensure that everybody has a guaranteed livable uh, basic income. I don't think it's one is at the exclusion of the other. I think both are problematic. Uh, you know, I've been a professional woman for many years, uh, earning l much less than my male counterparts. I mean, this is this is a cultural norm that needs to shift. Uh, but but also uh, one one of the other things that needs to shift is that shift is that we have the resources uh, in Canada to ensure that uh, individuals don't uh, live in poverty, whether they be women, members of the LGBTQIA uh, community, children. 
you know, I mean, we don't have to live in a society where people uh, live in poverty or are spilling on the streets because of losing employment during a pandemic and moving to encampments. Uh, we can do better. We are in a critical juncture. Not only is this a public and health and safety concern, as I mentioned, you know, if you want to social distance, uh, if you want to hand wash, you need water and you need a home to live mm -hmm. in. So uh, it's uh, critical right now that we support this motion, that we push forward to make sure that it becomes legislation. Again, uh, with the inclusion of paragraph five of my motion, we need to keep pushing it forward. So when you say that we need to keep pushing it forward, you know, we, you've gotten over 30,000, I think you said 31,000 signatures, which is amazing. Like, what are the next steps besides collecting more signatures? Well, we'll be having a national uh, day of action. Write your MPs, uh, call your senators, uh, let them know that this is an election issue and, and your vote will depend on them supporting this or not. This is a human rights matter. This is a dignity matter. This is a health and safety matter. So, so I'm pitching it again. Uh, 31 signatures, good. I'd like to see 5 billion uh, signatures. <laughs> I'd like to see wholesome participation in human rights and dignity yeah. in this country at leahgazan.ca slash basic income motion. We need to get this through. I have a question, and maybe this is just my own, um, I guess, being naive around politics sometimes and not knowing everything around it. But if let's say I call my senator or my MP or I write them, does that actually have an impact when you are when you are an MP that when people are calling you? Oh, absolutely. Like I get uh, lots of emails uh, in my uh, mailbox and uh, it certainly tells me what people are focused on. Uh, you know, I know that because of the over 31,000 signatures that we've had on the petition, you know, now members across the way are wanting to talk about it. Other parties are getting interested in, people are getting excited. Uh, and uh, if, if people think, if, if elected officials uh, know that this is going to be an election issue, they're going to pay attention. I think sometimes people forget uh, the importance of people power. Because yeah. people are the ones that decide whether we have a job or not. And I think we need to come out in full force. People need to come out in full force, tell all levels of government, uh, you know, senators, uh, members of parliament, uh, talk to your local organizations uh, that you know would support this and say, you know, why don't you send off a letter of endorsement? We need to keep pushing and we cannot stop to build the momentum until we realize this, this basic basic uh, uh, motion, very basic, that will ensure human rights and dignity for all. And I think that's something that maybe people forget or they they think that, you know, they're only one person. And so, you know, why would an MP listen to me? Or, you know, what is me emailing really going to do? But oh, it it's does when... something. Let me tell you, I'm elected <laughs> now. I'll tell you, it does something when somebody writes me an email. And for, for particularly for MPs that actually read them, I do read my emails and I do respond and, and my team responds in a really timely way. Uh, what people tell us matters to us because it tells us what people's uh, concerns are. We, we are able to identify what the priorities uh, areas are. And uh, you know, you're the boss. Uh, you deserve a response and you deserve to have uh, systems of governments and programs that reflect uh, what you want. Absolutely. So you heard it here first. You're the boss. 
email your MPs or call them. Maybe you didn't hear it here, here first. <laughs> and also we'll be organizing a national day of action. So stay tuned. If you, if you sign the petition so far, we'll be sending off information about the campaign that we're running uh, in support of a guaranteed livable basic income. And, and I encourage you to join and I encourage you to uh, mobilize others to join, sign the petition. It is working. People are paying attention. Let's keep signing it and, and uh, getting it up. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I will definitely get involved. And I, I appreciate what you're saying with um, calling and emailing, because I think from what I've heard from a, a fellow Albertans right now, um, a lot of us have been put on the auto responder. So it's, it's nice to hear that there's an elected official that um, still represents their, their community and doesn't have everybody on auto responder. Um, so that's really nice. We won't name names. We won't name names, but they've, they've heard from me. Um, I, I have a final question for you, and I'm, I'm going to rephrase it a little bit from what I wrote. But um, So right now your party at the federal level has put out um, calls for universal childcare, pharmacare, in, including dental, I believe, uh, a wealth tax, the uh, guaranteed living livable basic income what if you got everything you want and, and if, if all these motions went through what do you think the world would look like if you got all of these things and woke up the next day and it was implemented as you as you know to your specifications what would the world look like I think what we have to remember is that when you invest in people, it's good uh, economics. I, I certainly can speak to, to my motion to say that, you know, at a time where we see growing rates of unemployment, when you actually invest money in people, that money goes flows back into the economy, whether it be, uh, that's what keeps small businesses open. And small businesses, for example, are the biggest employer. And in order to go to work, you need a universal daycare program, childcare program to ensure that people can go to work. Um, you know, uh, and, and like I said, uh, I think before the podcast started, we were the, one of the few countries in the world, one of the only ones that has a Medicare program without a, a universal pharmacare, because you, you can, it's, it's, it, we know it costs more if somebody goes to the doctor and then doesn't have the medicine uh, they need. And we, we've certainly seen that with people who have diabetes, that if they only had, could afford the medicine uh, that they required, they wouldn't have to have, uh, have had amputations. And we know the high costs of, of, of when the health is left and left. So what would it look like? Uh, we know through research, we know through even a Medicare, if you compare the state situations in the states and Canada, uh, that it looks pretty good. And uh, I don't think there's anything scary about ensuring people are looked after, ensuring that everybody has human rights and dignity and has what they need to live joy. I really like that, the, the living joy especially. And I don't think you can get there, obviously, if, you're, if your basic needs aren't met. And 100%. Exactly I've done a lot of writing about that, actually. I've, I've, uh, prior, prior to this, I was, sorry, an academic, and I did a lot okay. of writing about that. Yeah. Fantastic. The right to joy. Well, thank you so much for joining us this evening. I feel like this is a really productive uh, conversation around what um, Motion 46 is and a universal basic income. Where can people find you online? Uh, they can go to on Twitter, 
uh, at Leah Gazan, at L-E-A-H-G-A-Z-A-N. And they can find me on Instagram and Facebook at, at Leah Gazan MP. So L-E-A-H-G-A-Z-A-M-M-P. Amazing. And can you share one more time where people can go and sign the petition and get more information around the day of action? Oh, yes, sign. So Leah Gazan, L-E-A-H-G-A-Z-A-N dot C-A slash basic income motion. And thank Amazing. you to both of you for fighting also to make the world a better place. It's up to us and we are going to win it. I sure hope so. <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks for Thanks. having me on. Thank you so much. Take care. Let us know what you think on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Pink Tax Podcast is recorded in the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. Our music is provided by Margot. You can find her work at noisebymargot.com. Sound editing by Peter Dobson. If you'd like to support the Pink Tax Podcast, you can make a donation at liberapay.com slash pinktaxpodcast and submit a five-star review on Apple Podcasts.